0: We find ourselves in very interesting times, do we not? Um, I think that's, a, that's the best way I could describe it right now. Interesting. But tomorrow, Mike, Pastor Mike mentioned it earlier, but tomorrow is Independence Day, July 4th, celebrating our country's 246th year of independence. And we are certainly blessed to be here in the United States of America but, as I said, we find ourselves in interesting times, and the thought came, to, thought came to my mind as I was preparing for this sermon, knowing that it would be shared on this holiday weekend, the weekend of our country's independence, and I, I think it serves as a warning to us as believers if we are not careful. And this was the thought that I had as I have observed the history of our country, it has moved from being individuals that wanted independence from government control and being dependent on God to individuals that want independence from God and dependence on government. Now, it certainly is not the case for everyone. It was, not the, it was not the case for everyone 246 years ago. It's certainly not the case for everyone today. But I look at a lot of the issues that we are facing today, and I believe that it is rooted in our country's desire to be independent of the God of the Bible and his principles that he has for us. Independent from his principles for the way we are to live our lives. And here is the warning to believers, may that never be said of us. As proclaimed followers of Jesus Christ, may, may it never be said of us here at Heritage or of me individually or of you indiv- individually that we are becoming independent from God, being reliant upon ourselves or our abilities, our gifts, our talents, our skills, our training, our whatever, we must be dependent on God for all things. Well, this morning as we look at Philippians, we have the author Paul, he's addressing the church there at Philippi addressing the believers there in Philippi. And in chapters 1 and 2 is specifically verses that we're going to focus on this morning. Verses 27 through 30 is where our text is going to be primarily. But in chapters 1 verse 27 through chapter 2 verse 18, Paul gives the church at Philippi four exhortations. And And here are the four. I'm just going to rattle them off quickly to you. The four The four exhortations that he gives the church are to stand firm amid persecution, to be united by humility, to remember the example of Christ, and to be a light in a dark world. Today, we're only going to look at the first exhortation, and that is to stand firm amid persecution. If you're there in your scripture or if the verses appear behind me, follow along as I read verses 27 through 30 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This morning, what I should want to share with you is something that I think I would label as simple, practical. Some of you might even label it as basic after you get done hearing what I share. But I wanna emphasize one thing concerning that, and that is this, just because something is basic or just because it is simple does not mean it is not important. And you have to remember, like, like with anything, a skill, a sport, a hobby, really anything that requires growth or development in any way, you have to master the basics in order for those to be built upon. You don't start with Mozart on the piano. You start with learning notes, posture, hand placement, and playing chopsticks. So I've been told, if I got any of that wrong, please forgive me. And you're like, well, that is so basic. Yes, but if you don't master those things, then you will always stay in the basic. And you'll always be playing chopsticks. And that is really cute when you're four. But when you're 40 and say you can play the piano and all you can do is chopsticks, it's not cute anymore. So this morning, you might hear simple, practical, and basic, but if we don't master this, if we don't master what, cha- what Paul is challenging the church at Philippi with, then, then we are spiritually going to be the 40-year-old playing chopsticks. We're going to be the individual that says, I've been saved for 40 years, and yet we're still on the milk of God's Word. So chapter 1 begins, and I want to back up just a little bit, verse 27 through 30 is where we're going to land primarily, but I want to give a little context, a little understanding of verses 1 through 11 in order, because Paul is really, if you want to say using verses 1-11 to even set up these exhortations that I mentioned that he begins with in verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 18. And chapter 1 begins with Paul greeting the church, and he says, grace and peace to you it's in verse three he says i thank excuse me verse two grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ grace and peace you see see grace is god's gift through jesus christ and he will give you peace in all and and paul starts this with reminding them of their relationship with god Grace is God's gift through Jesus Christ. However, working to earn God's favor will give you nothing but stress and insecurity. And Paul emphasizes this a lot through his epistles that he writes to the churches. He, he, he is emphasizing this because of the false teachers, through, uh, because of the Judaizers throughout that were constantly trying to include works and bring those into salvation. Salvation. Paul over and over and over again had to deal with this issue of grace alone for salvation. And often he included those phrases together, grace and peace together. He did that in his greetings as this reminder to everyone that it is only through God's grace can we have peace on this earth and for all of eternity. Peace cannot be rooted in our work Peace cannot be rooted in our circumstances or our wealth, our family, our popularity, our government, in other people's perception of us, and the list goes on and on and on. If you're looking for peace and satisfaction in any of those things, I can promise you this. You will constantly be in angst, and you will never be satisfied. Grace and peace, God's grace of salvation is our only way to peace. Paul thanks God for the Philippians, verses 3 through 5. He, tells, he says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Many of you have done work in the gospel, work in the church, partnering with one another, what, in, through discipleship, making teams or other type of activities and ministering and serving, and there is a great joy and camaraderie when you have partners in the faith. Paul loves the Philippians and we'll talk on that in just a second. But Paul reminds them of how thankful he is to them for their partnership. And then he goes right in to verse six and Paul reminds the church of the good work, which is salvation, that God has begun in them and he will bring it to completion. Now I do want to emphasize when he says he will bring it to completion, it's not that they're partially saved. They don't have a partial relationship with God. They have a complete and total relationship with Jesus Christ. But our salvation will not be complete until we enter glory. At the time of our death or upon his return. That is when God, when Jesus will fulfill that, will complete that work that he began in our lives. In verse 7 and 8, Paul affectionately longs to be with the church. I love this phrasing. You see the pastoral heart that he has. It is, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For, my, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul longs to be with the people there in Philippi. He loves those people. He holds them deeply in his heart and he pastorally loves them and wants to be with them. And he has a a pastoral even prayer for them right after this in verse 9. And it's very interesting what he prays for them. Look look at what he says here in verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, when you read that, I don't see Paul praying for peace for them or prosperity. He doesn't pray for their success or their ease of life. He doesn't pray for their their comfort in the midst of persecution and affliction. He doesn't pray for any of that. And what he prays, he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And I read that and I was kind of instantly thought, wow, my prayers for those that I love are way too shallow most of the time. What do we pray? We pray for healing of sickness, and that's great. We pray for things to go well. We pray for get a job or whatever it might be. We pray for do well on a test or schooling or so much stuff we pray for. But Paul cuts right to it. And his greatest prayer for them is not any of those things, but it's that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And verse 10 then follows up with, he tells us why he's praying that. He's praying that they, as I said, that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, Paul is praying that their love abounds in biblical knowledge, and that they have the moral perception, that they have the moral insight and understanding of that knowledge. So when their actions and lives abide deeply in genuine biblical knowledge, and that insight and that understanding of how to live the biblical truth, then they can approve what is excellent. He is saying that as a church, as a body, and as a people. He said he, he wants them to focus on the stuff that really matters. To have the right priorities. He's saying, look, as a group, you can distinguish what is truly important. And when you have that knowledge, that biblical knowledge, that the knowledge of the truth of God's word, and based on that knowledge, then you, with all discernment, you can see and understand what is, what is the priority that we should be about, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then, then, what does it say? You can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. See, Paul had an eternal perspective constantly in mind. To be quite honest, this might sound harsh. Yes, he was concerned for them, but his concern was not consumed with their circumstances. And what do we focus on too many times? Consumed with the circumstances and we forget the eternal perspective. And Paul cuts right through it. And as a church, what could we be? We, we could be consumed with all of the circumstances that is surrounding us and we could miss the eternal priorities. And that priority is that, that we will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul is, Paul is setting the stage here. He's setting the stage for these four exhortations. Think about that for a moment. He's about to to exhort them to do these four things. Stand firm, to be united in humility, to remember the example of Christ, to be a light in a dark world. And, And the question that came to mind is, how could the church possibly do that if they didn't first have love that is abounding more and more in biblical knowledge? And all discernment. You see, the exhortations that Paul gives to the church, they're they're pretty simple in being able to understand what those exhortations are. They're incredibly challenging to live out. They might be simple, but challenging to master. It is basic, but it's gonna take effort. It's easy to understand, and yet impossible to live out unless they're abiding in love for one another that is rooted and anchored deeply in the knowledge, God's biblical knowledge and all discernments, the absolute truth of God's word, and then the proper application of that truth. Let me ask you this quick question, if I could. What's more challenging, knowing truth or to live it out? I won't even do a raise of hands. To know the truth and to live it out. You know, truth, as we read God's word, we can consume a lot of truth. You can consume it yourself reading it. Hear it this morning, Lord willing. You could hear podcast after podcast of great speaker at a moment's notice. You could be absolutely inundated with the truth. But if you never meditate on it, if it never changes you. My wife doesn't know this, but she sent me a little devotional thing this morning of encouragement. And it was talking about meditating on the truth of God's word. This exact concept, and I'll probably mess up the quote, but it says something like this. Meditation is chewing on the truth long enough for it to change your actions. And I think myself, you know where I get stuck being inundated with truth and then I go, oh, things aren't going well. I need to spend more time in God's word. Or I mean, I need to do more. You know what I really need to do? I, I don't need to spend more time consuming more truth at times. What I need to do is take a moment and kind of settle and be still and hear God and his word and meditate on that truth and chew on that truth and digest that truth and not move on until it changes me until my actions now reflect the truth. You know, the easy answer to that question, concerning truth, what's easier? Knowing truth or living it out? I was gonna ask, well, if anybody's ever been on a diet, you know that question. If anybody's tried to do an exercise plan, you know that question. If anybody's tried to eat healthy, you know that question. You know that cheeseburgers, cheesecake, and dare I say donuts are not good for you. Yet how often do we avoid those? Rarely. (laughs) We know it, but the application, whatever it is, whether it be exercise, money management, time with the Lord, to know the truth is great, but without proper application of that truth, quite literally, the truth is wasted. If we don't let the truth of God's word change our actions, our attitudes, our decisions, our perspective on things, then what good actually is even the truth of God's word in our life? So let's look at verse 27 and see within this verse the first exhortation. It's the only exhortation we're going to deal with this morning, and that is standing firm in the midst of persecution. In verse 27, we see the verse begin with this phrase, let your manner of life be. In fact, verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life be. Then we see Paul, I think, I, I see here that I want to share this morning four things in verses 27 through 30 that capture that phrase, let your manner of life be these four things. And that's what I want to walk through this morning. But this phrase, let your manner of life be, the phrase, the phrase really means the manner of your life, it means your conduct, it means your actions, it means you, it's how you lead your life, it's how your life is lived out In front of others as Paul is talking to these believers in Philippi he knew his audience and he he knew he was talking to believers that Philippi was actually a a Roman colony and because of that they were Roman citizens and in fact in chapter 3 verse 20 of Philippians here he tells the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven and the Philippians knew something about what it meant to have good citizenship You see, as citizens of Rome, all of those privileges, there there's so many privileges that came with that. They knew the manner of life that they were to live as, as citizens. They knew as citizens what was expected of them in their behavior. And Paul is saying that as citizens of heaven first, as followers of Christ first, know how you are supposed to live. Those Philippians knew as citizens of Rome what they had, what it meant to them. They knew how they were supposed to act and not act as citizens of Rome. But Paul's reminding them as citizens of heaven first, as followers of Jesus Christ, let your conduct be this. Let your manner of life be this. And here's the four things. I'll start. Really, the big idea, the big question is this as a Christ follower, As a believer, as a Christ follower, what should your manner of life be? If you claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you claim to be a Christ follower, and that's who I'm talking to this morning, what should your manner of life be? Well, it says right off the bat, let it be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me clarify something, if I could, right away, and that is when you read this, I don't want anyone to think that anyone ever could be worthy of the gift of the gospel of Christ. No one's life, no one's actions, no one's moral living, no one's good citizen of the year, et cetera, et cetera, no one is worthy. We are all sinners, that is broken, that have broken God's standard of perfection and holiness to have a relationship with Him. So no one is worthy of salvation. This is not talking about something somebody's worthiness to get saved. It is, it is speaking to the once saved. It is speaking to those that are followers of Christ. It says that you should live in a way that demonstrates integrity. Paul's saying here to all the believers that we are to live a life of integrity in our actions, our life, is to be consistent with what we believe. It's to be consistent with what we believe, what we teach, what we model, what we preach to others. Think about it this way, and I'm going to ask maybe, maybe a couple challenging questions here. Think about it this way. When people hear that you are a Christian, would that surprise them? When people get done interacting with you at work, or at play, or at school, and they hear you're a Christian, would that surprise them? When your family hears the truth of God's word laid out from behind behind this pulpit week after week, does then your behavior at home confuse them? You know, Ephesians 4.1 was mentioned this morning by Jonathan. Thank you for doing that. I didn't pay him that or anything. But that verse says, I therefore as a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The word walk here has to do with our daily life, our actions, our journey, our daily journey through this life. Worthy here again shows the idea of living to match one's position in Christ. Your position should dictate your behavior. Let me say that again. Your position in Christ should dictate your behavior. And in fact, that's the only thing that should dictate your behavior. Your circumstances should not dictate your behavior. How frustrated you are should not dictate your behavior. Working should not dictate your behavior, or your work, or challenges there, or wherever it might be. Your position dictates your behavior. Your citizenship in Christ, in heaven, dictates our behavior. No one should ever be surprised or in disbelief that you are a follower of Christ after seeing you or after interacting with you or observing you. And I'll say this, especially if they do so on a consistent basis. Have there been times that if someone interacted with me one time that they walked away and I had a bad attitude or I was upset about something or I didn't display Christ-likeness at that moment? Yes, we are all fallible and we are all sin. But if someone on the consistent interacts with you and later they are surprised to find out you are a follower of Christ, something is wrong. God's word is not transforming you, you are not a light in a dark world, you are not walking worthy. Colossians 1.10 declares this truth. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God, to walk worthy is to walk fully pleasing to the Lord, which is to live in a way that is consistent with your identification with the Lord that saved you. To walk worthy is bearing fruit in every good work. Listen, since bearing fruit comes out of abiding in Christ and living a consistent, righteous life, we need to make sure that we are not trying and working just to do the bearing fruit part of it. The issue is, what are we to be working on and striving on? We're to be working on the root of where we are grounded in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, in the knowledge of all that his word has to say, in all discernment. We're we're working on the root because it's a healthy root system that does what? Produces fruit. If all we're doing is trying to bear fruit by doing good and, and, and appeasing people and doing all of, all of this type of stuff, it's just gonna, it's gonna wither, and your plant's gonna wither and rot. You're missing the abiding in Christ and the root structure in order for that fruit to appear. To walk worthy is increasing in knowledge of God. Only, listen, our growth can only only take place in the knowledge of his word. It is a deeper love for God's word, a strong doctrinal foundation, a greater love for others. So the question this morning is, are you living worthy of the gospel of Christ? Or another way of saying that is, are you living in a way that is consistent with the identification with the very Christ that saved you? The second thing I see here that Paul is challenged of letting our, la- our manner of life be. The first is worthy of the gospel. And secondly, I would say that being worthy of the gospel everywhere and in all circumstances. You see there in verse 27, as we continue, it says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, Paul is challenging them to live Consistently. Whether they are in his presence or not is the thought process of being faithful, consistent, grounded, not giving in, not hypocritical. It's the understanding that you live in the same way at home, at church, at play, at work, at school. Your language is the same here as it is at work, at school, at play. Your attitudes, your actions how you treat people, how you make people feel. Paul is saying here in this passage to live consistent as citizens of heaven and followers of God, whether he is with them or not, whether he is standing beside them or not. And I can't help envision little kids kind of misbehaving and then dad or mom appears in the doorway and all of a sudden they're like, right? And it's a mom and dad going, hey, whether I'm with you or not, don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't smack your sibling. Don't do this. Why? So you don't get in trouble. No, because it's the right thing. And what is Paul saying? Say, hey, whether I'm with you or not, don't give in. Stand firm. Whether I'm here locking arm in arm with you and standing firm or if you have to stand by yourself. Paul emphasizes this. He emphasizes again that your position in Christ is what should dictate your behavior. Not whether you're trying to please the preacher, the parent, the coworker, the whatever. Your life should be lived the same in the presence of the preacher or in the presence of the heathen. It needs to be consistent because your position in Christ does not change depending on your company that you keep. Parents, could I emphasize this so much right now? This point is so important in the life of your children. You being consistent, hear this, not perfect. No such person exists. You being consistent before them in your pursuit of the Lord and in the manner in which you live, I would dare say is the most powerful thing that you could ever do for them. And living a life of hypocrisy in front of them, I would also dare say is the most damaging thing that you could do to them. The world is confusing enough, is it not? Don't confuse them further by your hypocrisy. Listen, in the end, your children might even disagree disagree with your beliefs at some point. But one thing they should always be able to say is this. I may disagree with my parents on some things, but at least they were consistent in how they lived out their beliefs. I could go on and on concerning that issue, but I will stop. Please, parents, hear the seriousness of that appeal. Thirdly, the third thing that I think Paul says here of letting the, le- the manner of our life be, and that is that we need to stand firm in one spirit. He says this, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's referring to this, the standing firm, to be steadfast, to be immovable, unmovable. But the question is, unmovable in What? Steadfast in what? Our opinions? How about our preferences? What are we to be unmovable in? Well, I think it refers back to verse 10. Remember verse 10? In biblical knowledge and all discernment. We are to stand firm in the truth, God's truth. But here's also the reminder. How how are we also supposed to speak the truth? We speak the truth in love but it's God's truth that guides us. We're to stand firm on what God's truth says. We get caught up standing firm, and for lack of a better word, maybe even stubborn or obnoxious in what? Our preferences, our opinions. We need to make sure that, that we hold those loosely. We, certainly we have them, we all have them, but we can't hold them in the same regard as we hold the truth of God's word. So we're to stand firm. Stand firm as a soldier stands his post and is ready to be counted on. Stand firm as a soldier who is steady and can be relied upon in unity, in one spirit. As I was thinking about unity, and he's talking to the church, and I'm thinking, man, there's, there's almost nothing more destructive in unity than pride and arrogance. Arrogance. Because unity as a group requires what? It requires humility. It requires teachability. It requires growing in that truth that we're being challenged to to basically be consumed in. And if we don't have our open mind to the truth of God's word, that maybe, maybe we could learn something from it. Or maybe maybe we even had it wrong. Don't be stuck in our arrogance or preferences or opinions. Let's stand firm on the truth of God's word. The verse continues on and says, with one mind striving side by side. And Paul changes his analogy basically from the, from the soldier standing firm. He basically changes it to kind of a teammate mentality. He changes it to this, to this one person as part of a team that is struggling for victory against a common foe. You know, one of the things that makes me so sad over the years is that when, I would even say potentially our church or the church, when we break into factions and fight all these little foes that we think are the most important thing, instead of being of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So often we have made the little things, and they are little, they are things, but we've made the little things the main thing. And we run off in all these little factions, divided And a divided front is easily conquered. A divided team is easily defeated. But a unified team is always more productive than a divided individual effort. See, we need to be striving side by side, working together. We say praying together, crying together, growing together, focused together on the faith of the gospel. Lastly, verse 28 through 30 It says, Let your manner of life be. And what does he challenge here in verse 28? It says, And not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We are not to be frightened. Well, you know, when we are unified, When we are striving together, when we are focused on the truth of the gospel, the absolute truth of the gospel, then what do we have to be fearful of? What do we have to be fearful of? In fact, just a few verses previous that I didn't touch on this morning, what what does the apostle say in verse 21? Paul says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. What can the world possibly do to us that we have to be frightened about if that's our mindset? if you have that incredible hope, if you have that understanding of the absolute truth of God's word and the gospel. In fact, as we continue to read that verse, it says that our lack of fear while suffering for the gospel is actually a sign to the opponents of the gospel of their upcoming destruction. You know, one of the things, and I've heard stories of those that are being persecuted and suffering greatly and it's their kindness to their torturer it's their kindness and their hope and their kind words even in the midst of their suffering that has sometimes broken the very heart of those that are inflicting pain upon them and what is it it's a hope that they they know nothing about It's the the kindness that through their position in Jesus Christ and their hope of eternity, and knowing that my citizenship is not of this world. My citizenship is in heaven, so whatever you do to me, I'm still at peace. I still have joy. I still have love. I can still have kindness. I can still all do all of those things. And And it's a reflection to those that are opposing the gospel that, you know what, their judgment is coming, that it is real. In verse 29 and 30, it addresses our suffering, and it's it's a very um, it's a verse that actually took me off guard for just a moment as you process through it and think through it. It it addresses our suffering, and it says this phrase in there. It starts as says, "For it has been granted to you that, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake." Paul's saying some amazing things in these two verses. One thing he says in verse 30 is like, "Hey, you saw me suffer previously." And yes, it's still going on. And it, it, I, I kind of thought, you know what? Suffering for Christ, there's not, it's, it's nothing new. It's nothing that Christ said. He suffered, and my followers are going to suffer. They, the world hated me first, he said, and they're going to hate you. And we've seen persecution through the ages. And it continues. And it's still going to continue. But he also says this that suffering for his sake has been granted to you. It's an interesting phrase. That word granted to you, it means this. It means given as a gift. It means graced to you. Now, I love the grace of salvation. Amen? It's a gift that's been given to me. I love it. All of the reward. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did he just say suffering has been granted to us as a gift? Yes. Yes. And as we look through this, it means the suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering in the Christian life is not a curse, but it's a blessing that actually fosters growth. James 1, 2 through 2-4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's talking about uh, spiritual maturity there. So what our testing, our suffering, produces spiritual maturity when you remain steadfast in Christ, when you're still abiding deeply with Christ. So to believe in Christ and to suffer for Him, according to this verse, are really two sides of the same coin of Christian living. Both have been granted as a gift, one for salvation and the other for growth. So the question is, what is the manner of your life? Verse 27 starts with, let your manner of life be. And these four challenges this morning that I believe Paul lays out here in these verses is, do you live in a way that is worthy of the salvation you claim? Do you live that way consistently wherever you are and whoever you are with? Do you stand firm in unity and strive together for what's most important? Or do you live in fear of the opponents of the gospel or in the courage of the hope that we have in Christ? Well, when I started this morning, I said that this was going to be pretty simple, even basic. But I also said that basic is important because without mastering the basic, how do we ever move on to the complex and the challenging? May this morning be a great reminder of the basics that we are to master, and then may we spend the rest of our days mastering how the manner of our life may bring the Father the most glory. Would you join me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this challenge that you laid out here in Philippians 1 through the through the pen of the apostle Paul to the church in Philippi the timely word even for today concerning standing firm lord i pray for this congregation that even stands before me that our love that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and with all discernment lord may this church may may, may us as individuals that make up this church be known not just simply for our knowledge, but for the proper application of that knowledge, for the proper use of that knowledge in all discernment, for the proper application of how it has radically changed our lives. May we go out today in celebrating our independence of our country tomorrow, but may we go out today celebrating and embracing our complete